Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. While the debate over model wars continues into the decade, satellite technology that the United States has advanced over the years is second to none. Being able to see the atmosphere from the top-down view has changed the way meteorologists around the world can forecast the weather. They can see where severe storms are to provide up-to-the-second forecasts in order to keep people safe. One of the men behind this great satellite is talking with me today on Weather Geeks. Dan Lindsay is a research scientist at NOAA, and he was at the forefront of one of the latest major satellite launches, the GO-16 geostationary satellite. Dan, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Shepard. Yeah, it's a great honor. And, uh, you know, Dan is a, uh, we have some connection in that uh, he has actually an, uh, has an undergraduate degree, I believe, a bachelor's degree from the University of Georgia, which, of course, is where I'm a professor. But quiet as kept, we didn't grow up too far from each other. He grew up in uh, Pickens County, Georgia, and I grew up in Cherokee County, Georgia, and they're not far from each other. So always like to uh, bring in some connectivity. Let me give you a little bit of the background on who Dan Lindsay is before we ask him the question that we ask all Weather Geeks guests. Dan is a research scientist for the National Environmental Satellite Data and Information Science uh, uh, system. Or, and, uh, they have that written as science. Now, what does ne- the last S in NESDA stand for, Dan? Service. That's what I thought. So yeah. it's the National <laughs> Environmental Satellite Data and Information Service, uh, better known to us in meteorology as NESDIS. Uh, he's been there since 2004 in that role where he researches mesoscale meteorology and satellite applications. His current research projects focus on GOES and POSE satellite data. He's also a senior scientific advisor for the GOES-R, GOES-16 program. Uh, he spent time at the Cooperative Institute for Research in the Atmosphere, CIRA. Um, he was actually, I didn't know this, a part-time media meteorologist at the Weather Channel from 1998 to 1999, his master's degree in 2002 and PhD in 2008 in atmospheric sciences from Colorado State University and a BS in mathematics from the University of Georgia. Gotta say this before we jump over to Dan, he received NOAA's David Johnson Award for his work in preparing for the optimal use of data and imagery from GOES-R, so from the Advanced Baseline Imager, which is an instrument on the GOES-R satellite. So, we have someone here today that knows their stuff when it comes to weather satellites. So, Dan, here's the big question we ask all our guests. What got you into the field of weather? Uh, that is a really good question. You know, there were a couple of weather events when I was a kid um, that really stuck out in my mind and, and made me be really interested in weather. The first was the so-called storm of the century, March of 1993. Um, you mentioned Pickens County. That's where I grew up in the town of Jasper, we received uh, 16 inches of snow with that storm, which for North Georgia is um, extremely unusual. In fact, it's the most that I've ever witnessed um, growing up there. It was amazing. We, we It stayed cold for a week after the snow, and we had no school, which, of course, as a high school student was, uh, was super exciting. <laughs> exactly. and, and then the following year, um, in 1994, this was not such a fun event. We had the, the Palm Sunday Tornadoes in March of 1994. And those, uh, of course, resulted in multiple fatalities, unfortunately, in Alabama and Georgia, and I believe other states, including at least, I believe, eight in Pickens County. 
So both of those events stuck out in my mind and really got me interested in weather at a young age. So that's really interesting. You you were interested in meteorology at an early age, but I noticed that you actually majored in math at the University of Georgia. And, and as as you know, at the time that you were there, we didn't have an atmospheric sciences major as we do now. So what made you go into math? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I got to first got to the University of Georgia, I didn't really know what I wanted to do other than I was generally interested in, in math and, and science related things. And so I took a few general classes, one of which was in the geography department, which is where at, at University of Georgia, the uh, meteorology classes were offered. And it was taught by one of your colleagues, Dr. Tom Moat. And I really enjoyed the class. You know, it talked a lot about weather type uh, factors. And so I talked to Dr. Moat after class one day and I said to him, if I want to major in meteorology, you know, and become a weather forecaster, uh, what should I major in? Or, you know, it, since there's no major here, what should I do? And he said, well, you should transfer. And I said, I don't want to transfer. You know, I have lots of ties to Georgia. I just got into the University of Georgia. And he said, well, if you want to get into more of the research side of, of weather, then what you could do is shoot for graduate school and you could major in either math or physics or something like that at the University of Georgia. So in talking to various people there, I learned that the math department was pretty good, and I was always sort of enjoyed math. So I, I did, in fact, major in math and finished that degree in 1998, and then I applied and was accepted to the atmospheric science department at, uh, at Colorado State University, where, where that I went in the fall of 99. And for those that are listening and may not be aware, Colorado State is certainly one of the best meteorology or atmospheric sciences graduate programs in the nation. So uh, we are talking with Dan Lindsay. And I want to now dive into, this is going to be a really tour de force discussion of severe weather and satellite information, and because Dan knows his stuff when it comes to satellites. But before we get into the details, can you give the listeners a quick 101 on satellites, because you, to you and I, this idea that a satellite is looking at the weather and the planet from multiple bands, visible, infrared, all of that is very meaningful to us, but perhaps not meaningful to others. So can you give a little 101 on how satellites use different channels and bands to see weather? Yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. It's a good question. Um, so we have really two major types of weather satellites. One of them, one type is called, they're called polar orbiters, and they orbit relatively low, something like 800 kilometers above the Earth's surface. And uh, they move rather quickly. They, they're called polar orbiters because they, they generally have orbits that cross the poles. And the, the fact that they're moving quickly means they could really only take single snapshots in time. So as the satellite passes over, it can take a snapshot and it can look at the clouds or the land or whatever, whatever is interesting. But then it's gone because it's moving so quickly. The other type of satellite is called a geostationary satellite. These are satellites that are about 36,000 kilometers away from the Earth, so much, much further away. And the reason that they're positioned at such a, a high altitude is so that the orbit of the satellite is at the exact same rate that the Earth is spinning. And they're positioned over the equator. And so what happens is the orbit matches exactly with the Earth's rotation and it's always looking at the same place on, on the Earth. And the, the advantage of doing that is you can, the satellite then takes images every so often, say every minute or every five minutes, and we can therefore see the motion of things on the Earth. For example, clouds moving, hurricanes spinning, uh, we can see smoke from wildfires and that kind of thing. Now, when I say take pictures, that's a, a bit of a simplification of what's really happening. We have several different instruments on the, the GOES-R series, which is on one of these geostationary satellites. Uh, one of which, which you mentioned early on, is the Advanced Baseline Imager, or the ABI. 
And this imager collects data at various wavelengths or channels or bands. You, you hear different uh, terminology for it. And uh, those different wavelengths really tell us different things about what we're seeing. One of them is in the visible spectrum. And what that means is we have sunlight coming in, reflecting off clouds or reflect, reflecting off the earth. And we, then we detect it at the, the visible wavelengths. And that's somewhere between 0.4 and 0.7 micrometers. And then we also have infrared wavelengths. And what the, those are longer wavelengths, say, on the order of 11 micrometers or so. And that's not anything, anything from sunlight. What that is is basically radiation that's emitted by clouds and emitted by the ground and emitted by things on the Earth's surface. The advantage of infrared, we, there's several, but one of them is that we can see things at night because when the sun sets, we lose our visible channels, and at night we can still see clouds and we can track hurricanes and things like that. Uh, and so there, there actually are 16 spectral bands. I, I, I think it's a little too much to go into what every single one of them <laughs> does. Right. But, but generally, visible and infrared are the most important ranges. Yeah, I think you did a nice job with that 101. I mean, we teach an entire satellite meteorology course at the University of Georgia. So, uh, of course, it's a little unrealistic ex to expect the, a deep dive on the podcast. But I think, think you did a nice job. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are probably some resources out there that people could take a look at if they want to kind of get a dive deeper on satellite meteorology. Is there anything, Dan, like off the top of your head, you could recommend the website that people could, if they want to learn more about just how satellite, weather satellites work? Yeah. Um, one possibility would be the GOES-R satellite from NOAA, which is goes-r.gov. It gives lots of details about the GOES series. Um, in, in terms of sort of a training resource, one possibility would be the Comet website, if you C-O-M-E-T, which is affiliated with UCAR and Boulder. They have lots of training resources, including lots from uh, lots on satellite meteorology. So that's one. Um, th those are two possible places to take a look to learn more. Now, the GO-16, tell us a little bit more, and then also the GO-17, tell us a little bit more about how they're changing the game in terms of weather satellites and meteorology. I mean, that, that, I, I know the answers to that, but I think our, our Weather Geeks listeners might be surprised at just how revolutionary these satellites are. Yeah, so uh, GO-16 and GO-17 have a number of new instruments that were not we didn't have on the previous set of satellites. The previous set of satellites were first launched in, in 1995, or they became operational in 1995, and actually still operated, they're still operated today more in legacy mode. But uh, the instruments on GO-16 and 17 that are new, I mentioned the ABI, the Advanced Baseline Imager. I'll say a few more words about that. Um, in the previous satellite series, we only had five channels, five bands on, our, on the imager. The ABI has 16, and so that's over a factor of three increase in number of spectral channels. In terms of spatial resolution, and what spatial resolution means is basically, um, you, you think about it as if you get a, an improved camera, it's able to see smaller things, it's smaller pixels. And so the pixel size on the, uh, on the ABI is a factor of four better than the previous satellite, which is, say, a one, right, it's, a, it's a two kilometer improvement or a factor of two kilometer in, in the north, south, and the east, west direction. So that's a factor of four. And then the last way that it's better is with, um, with temporal sampling. And what that means is how quickly it takes the pictures. Previously, we were taking images, say, every 15 minutes was about the best we could do. Uh, in operations. And now we actually are taking a full disk image. That means the entire hemisphere every 10 minutes. We're ta at the same time, we're taking a five, every five minutes, a picture of the continental U.S. from goes east. And, and we have two what we call mesoscale sectors that we can move around over interesting weather events. And those take an image every one minute. 
And that allows us to uh, be flexible on where the, the interesting weather is happening. For example, say we had a hurricane making landfall in Florida at the same time as a tornado outbreak in Kansas. In that situation, we could take one of our mesoscale sectors, put it over Florida, take the other one, put it over Kansas, and collect one-minute imagery in both of those areas. Yeah, and that's a, a, a critical. Uh, I'm, I'm teaching a mesoscale meteorology class right now, and we talk about how many of these mesoscale weather events, severe storms. In fact, as as we're taping this in early February, your home state, Dan, is under under threat of severe weather today and tomorrow. And I'm sure that the Go satellite is going to be a critical sort of tool that National Weather Service folks are mentioning. Now, uh, there was the Go 17 that went online recently, but there were some I- issues with that that Jeff the mission. Um, without getting into all of the details, wh- what was the problem and what's the, what's the fix? Where are we on that? Yeah, so GO-17, uh, it was launched in March of 2018. And when they started powering on the instruments, when they powered on the ABI, which is the imager I've been talking about, um, they realized that it wasn't cooling as much as it, it really needed to. Uh, it, it may not make sense on why we need to cool an instrument in space, considering it's literally in space and it's quite cold up there. But the reason is the sun shines on the instrument with no atmosphere above it for uh, the, during the nighttime hours. And we, we need to keep the instruments cool so that they're able to detect the infrared wavelengths coming from the Earth. But uh, the cooling system on the ABI on GOES-17 is not operating the way that it should. Uh, something called the loop heat pipe is one of the, the cooling components. And therefore, we're not able to completely cool down the instrument uh, during the nighttime hours, really during certain times of year that this is an issue. And the result is during a few hours in each, each night, some of the infrared bands become unusable. Uh, they become what is called saturated. It sort of looks like static, like you would see on an old television on a channel you didn't get. Um, however, really, it's, it's not the end of the world. We, we just lose a few of those infrared bands during uh, some, some hours during the night. We don't lose all of the infrared bands. We can still see clouds at night, and um, some of them become a little bit degraded, but we're still able to do things like track hurricanes. So, you know, it could have been a lot worse. There was a lot of work that went on on the engineering side in order to change the way that we're operating the ABI in order to sort of mitigate the problem. And so uh, kudos to really it was a a public-private partnership team between NASA, NOAA, and and some of the private companies that worked to to make this a lot better. And now we're getting something like 98% of the data that that we really should be getting from GO-17. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Dan Lindsay, who is one of the nation's top weather satellite experts. He works for NOAA, NESDIS, and is also senior scientific advisor for the GOES-R, GOES-16 program. Dan, one of the things that I alluded to in the introduction of this podcast is the model wars. I think as meteorologists, we hear all about the Euro model, the GFS model, and there. 
I actually I, mean, I always cringe when I hear it because I, I, I just feel like a lot of the people in the public have kind of this has gotten out of hand a little bit because people think that the European model, though it is statistically the best model in terms of the metrics that we use, I don't think that people understand that the GFS is still a very good model. We're not, as I often say, we're not talking about a sports car versus a horse and buggy here. We're talking about two sports cars. One's just a little bit better fine tuned, has a little bit more data. One of the reasons that the European model is uh, slightly better is in terms of how they date, do data assimilation and bring new data into their model with these very fast computers. Satellite data is a very important part of what gets assimilated in. Can you talk about the importance of weather satellite data in our models? Yes, uh, Dr. Shepard, you're absolutely right. Data assimilation is a critical component to, to models. And the reason why is uh, in order for a model to work the, as best as possible, what you need to do is give it a good initial condition. And what that means is tell the model what's happening right now. Where are the clouds? Where are the clear skies? Where are the storms? What is the temperature? What is the water vapor content? And really not just at the surface, but really in a three-dimensional picture of the Earth. And so what the, the satellites allow us to do is see the entire globe due to the fact that we're, we're looking from a, a long distance away from geostationary orbit. And since we can see the entire globe, we can, make an, we can do retrievals of things like temperature and water vapor. We can see clouds. We can track the clouds. All of that is really good information that are then fed into the model through this process called data assimilation. I mentioned um, moving the clouds. The way, that, the way that we do that is the satellite can sense a cloud, and then at the, at the next image it takes, it senses the cloud again and again and again. And if that cloud is moving along, it's being blown by the wind. And so what we can do is track the location of that cloud, calculate the vector of that particular cloud, and that gives us an estimate of what the wind speed is. This is really valuable, especially out over the ocean, where we don't have a lot of surface observations. And we're able to make an estimate of what the winds are, say, between Hawaii and the continental U.S., something like that. And we feed that information into the model, and a better initial condition from the model therefore results in a better forecast. Uh, there's a lot of other data besides just the winds that go in. I, um, from the polar orbiting satellites that I mentioned below, they, they collect di different wavelengths, including in the microwaves, in the microwave wavelength range. And those microwave wavelengths are really valuable, too, in terms of uh, feeding that information into the model to make a better forecast. And I want to emphasize that uh, though we're focusing on NOAA satellites today, there are, are several Earth-observing satellites in orbit right now, NOAA, NASA, European Space Agency, and others. And these satellites, uh, many of them which are low-Earth orbiting, are providing other types of data sets that go into the models as well. And so I always like to emphasize that, yes, the European model is a very good model and one that I use, and we should be proud uh, that our, our American model does pretty well and sometimes beats the European model. But statistically, yes, the European model is the better model, but it relies a lot on our satellite data, and it's important for people to understand that. Uh, I want to now pivot the discussion, Dan, to something. Last year, you, along with Dr. Howie Bluestein of among others, published research that coupled satellite observations of something called overshooting tops in tornadic supercells. What can these high-resolution satellites tell us about supercell thunderstorms that produce tornadoes? Yeah, the, the, it was really an honor to work with Professor Bluestein from University of Oklahoma. I mean, he, he was a pioneer in, in a lot of the uh, severe weather research, tornado genesis, and that kind of thing. Uh, Dr. Bluestein and his team, they have a what's called a mobile Doppler radar that they... Um, they essentially have a radar on the back of a truck. You may have actually seen him on, on some of the Weather Channel uh, TV shows in the past um, 
where they do storm chasing, but it's more than just chasing. They're actually collecting valuable data sets to do research. And so um, what the, the satellite brings to the table, I mentioned before, when we have these mesoscale sectors, they're one-minute scans. And thunderstorms, when they, they, they're associated with very strong winds and very strong updrafts and downdrafts. That means vertically moving air upwards and downwards. And uh, what, we really need a, an instrument that can capture those really quick changes with time. And so with one of these mesoscale sectors, we're taking an image every one minute. And from space, we're actually able to track these clouds as they form and as they become mature, they begin uh, punching up through the top of the, the troposphere. That's the sort of the, the very, uh, it's called the tropopause. And this is a stable layer. And when you send an updraft through the tropopause into the stratosphere, it's very stable up there. And uh, the cloud tends to collapse back down. And that, that feature that I was talking about, that cloud, is called an overshooting top. We're able to see these very well from the satellites, from using the one-minute data. And we can track these as they, they bubble up. And when you look at it in really rapid motion, it, it sort of looks like a, a water bubbling on a pot. And that's because the physics is very similar between uh, the thunderstorms and between convection from, from a pot of boiling water. Now, the work with Professor Bluestein, what we were doing is taking um, some of his mobile Doppler observations, radar observations, which is ground-based, and comparing that to the satellite information on where the overshooting tops are located. And this, this type of comparison, there haven't been a, a very many studies done on that, really because the previous version of the satellites wasn't able to, uh, to capture the overshooting tops nearly as well as we can now. And so after, with, with that work, we're able to better understand the relationship between the overshooting tops in the lower portion of the cloud, as observed, as observed from radar, with those from, that we can observe from GO-16 and GO-17. Yeah, that, this is a very important uh, line of research. I appreciate that you and Dr. Bluestein are doing this work. You talked about the overshooting tops. And uh, if you ever, by the way, Dan, could you give people your, tw I want you to pause right now if you're listening and go immediately while you're listening to Dan's Twitter, because he's an amazing person to follow on Twitter. He posts some really interesting satellite images. Can you give people your Twitter account? It's uh, at DanLindsay77. That's yeah. L-I-N-D-S-E-Y for the last name. Yes. And I should also plug, um, I, I also recommend checking out, there's a really a lot of good satellite Twitter feeds out there, but also check out the NOAA Satellites Twitter feed. Yes. Um, they, they tend to have post more things than I do these days, and uh, there's a lot of really, really good stuff that, that are posted there on a daily basis. Yeah, I would also recommend a, a young man named Dakota Smith, who posts some really good stuff, too, out there on, sat on satellite meteorology. But there are a lot of good sources out there, but I just wanted to make sure we got that out there, because I, I usually will kind of peek at what you're tweeting out there. And you mentioned the overshooting tops, but... I know in class I teach about some other sort of satellite-based signatures that can be linked to severe weather as well, things like the V-notch. This is really getting into well, – this is weather geek, so let's geek out. Uh, talk about the, the V-notch that we often see in the thermal signature, signature of the satellite data. Earlier I mentioned the uh, infrared detection, and uh, as a reminder, that's what we generally use at night. It's also useful during the day because what the infrared tells us is how cold is the cloud – uh, and, and the coldness or the temperature of the cloud is an indication of how high it is. Generally, the higher up in the atmosphere, the colder it is. And generally, the higher up in the atmosphere, generally, the stronger the storm. That's not always the case. But with a thunderstorm, you can sort of infer the strength of the storm based on how cold it is. And so with the infrared imagery, we can detect the, how cold or warm the cloud tops are. With supercell thunderstorms, these are thunderstorms that are, uh, have mid-level rotation and sometimes produce tornadoes. These are the types of storms that in the, on the central plains um, 
that are producing very large hail. This, or this really happens throughout the continental U.S. It's most common on the central plains. Um, and some, with these strong storms, we get this infrared signature where the shape of the cold part of the cloud looks a little bit like a U or a V. And this is research that was first noticed way back, so I would say the, around 1980 or so, when we first had infrared uh, satellites in, uh, in orbit. And that they see this U or V notch associated with these supercell thunderstorms. And that's a signature that the storm is probably severe. Uh, you know, it's not a guarantee, but, you know, most storms that are producing these U notches or V notches, as we see from satellite, is an indication that it's a severe storm. And so the forecasters really, even today, still use that signature in combination with other information from radar in order to do things like issue severe thunderstorm warnings um, for, for large hail or other, uh, say, high winds and other hazards from those types of storms. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia with severe weather anything goes. That's what we're calling this podcast because we're talking about the GOES satellites and we are talking with an expert on the GOES satellites. Before we kind of dive into more uh, weather-related things, there are some other unique aspects of this next-generation satellite system. One is a, a lightning mapper. Can you talk about that advance? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the lightning mapper is something that uh, I should have mentioned earlier when I was talking about the ABI because it really works well in combination with the ABI. So uh, the instrument is called the Geostationary Lightning Mapper or GLM. And this is basically just a camera that we have detecting um, radiation at 777 nanometers, which is just beyond the visible portion of the spectrum. And what it does is it detects very rapid changes in brightness or basically changes in radiation at that wavelength. And the things in on the Earth that have brightness that changes very rapidly is basically lightning. And so they're able to use the very rapid changes to sort of pull out the lightning signal. And what that allows us to do is, is for all intents and purposes, we're seeing lightning from space. And now we, there have been some legacy satellites on the polar side that have been able to detect lightning. I believe there was a lightning imager on the, uh, the TRIM satellite. But uh, this is the first time that we've had one in geostationary orbit. And again, as a reminder, the advantage of having that in geostationary orbit is we're looking at the same field of view constantly. And so we can see every single flash that occurs with a given thunderstorm. And uh, that it really, to be honest, we're still learning about the GLM. This was a, this is a, since it's the first time any such instrument has been in geostationary orbit. We're trying to understand really what is that signal that we're seeing? What is the lightning signal telling us about a storm? Uh, one example is, if you may remember Hurricane Dorian, which yes. uh, was a big storm that affected the Bahamas and portions of the eastern U.S. back around the beginning of September of 2019. Uh, using the geostationary lightning mapper, we were able to measure the lightning going on in the eye wall of Hurricane Dorian as it approached the Bahamas. And at times, the, the lightning mapper was showing very intense lightning activity around the eye. And at other times, there was no lightning activity at all. 
in the eyewall. And so a lot of the active research right now is really understanding why. Why do we sometimes have a lot of lightning? Why do we not sometimes not have a lot of lightning? And what does that tell us about the storm? Is, does that mean the storm is going to strengthen, weaken, remain the same? Anyway, there's a lot of research questions going on right now um, and that the GLM observations have, have allowed us to look at and start to understand a little bit better. Yeah, and, and I know we've been playing around with that data itself. It's such a unique data set. One thing that I saw recently in a, a news report Noah, I think, released, it was about the sort of life-saving aspects of the GO satellite that people may not realize. I think it has some search and rescue uh, contributions or capabilities. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so uh, there's some instrumentation on the spacecraft of GO-16 and GO-17 um, that allow it to uh, relay information from, uh, say that there's, there's a ship that's stranded out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean somewhere in the East Pacific. Uh, we have uh, some communications capabilities on the satellite that's able to relay that, those distress calls uh, back to um, you know, the, the people who may be able to, to, the Coast Guard say, to go and do the rescues. And that, that's just one capability from our GOES satellite series that not many people know about and, uh, and has led to you know, a number of, of people being rescued over the years. Yeah, and it's it's one of those unsung capabilities of the satellite system that I, I wanted to use this opportunity to share because I just don't think people are aware of that capability on the satellite. Now, my producer wanted me to ask if there are, are any things about the GO satellite or perhaps others that you work with that uh, uh, relay information on how our climate may be changing. Yeah, so, yeah, th- of course, Noah's very interested in, in monitoring uh both weather and climate on different scales. And so one example of a thing that we're doing from the climate side that that is very beneficial is really cloud observations. Uh, One of the main things we do is detect clouds. We detect the the height of the clouds, the particle size of the cloud tops, the optical depth, which is basically how thick the clouds are, and really just the coverage, you know, where are the clouds at any given time. So with a really long data set, say from the beginning of the GOES series back in the late late 1970s, what you can do is build what's called a cloud climatology. We can say how many clouds are there or what coverage of the earth are, are clouds having at any given time and then track that with time because clouds are really important from the climate standpoint. They, they reflect solar light. They also emit long-wave radiation that, that originates from the earth's surface. And so really understanding the cloud feedback on climate is extremely important. And, and I think the GOES series is ideal for that because we're able to see clouds at all times and if we combine the information from our, our partner satellites, from, say, the UMETSAT over Europe and from the, our, our partners at the Japanese Meteorological Agency, JMA, over parts of Asia, we, we then have global coverage. And we can see clouds uh, around the entire globe. And then with a long data set, we can study that and understand how the clouds may be changing with time as the climate changes. And now, Dan, I know we've been focused on GOES, but the listeners might be interested to know that there are other geosynchronous satellites uh, from other nations that are helping give us that global coverage that you just talked about. Could you talk about just some of the other geostationary satellite assets? I know, for example, the Himawari uh, system uh, that I believe that, uh, that we see over in Asia is in some ways comparable to the GOES systems that we now have up. Exactly, yeah. So the, uh, the JMA, the Japanese Meteorological Agency, launched the Himawari 8 satellite a few years before we launched GOES. When I say we, I mean NOAA launched GOES 16. And they have something called the Advanced Himawari Imager, or AHI. And, and like you said, Dr. Shepard, it's extremely similar to the ABI. It's not identical. They have a few different channels that, uh, that the ABI doesn't have. Um, but 
the, the advantage of that is um, we were able to get the data in, in collaboration with JMA, get access to their data set before we even launched our satellite. And this was really useful for us to understand exactly what type of information this instrumentation was going to bring. And Noah learned a lot from that. We also have um, the, our partners at UMETSAT. That's the um, European Meteorological or European Satellite Agency, I should say, which is headquartered in Darmstadt, Germany. Um, it's really a, a consortium of governments that, that contribute to UMETSAT. They have a couple of operational satellites as well. One of them is called MediaSat 11, and it's centered right over the prime meridian, over about zero degrees longitude. And then they have a second satellite, which they've moved over to about 41 degrees east longitude, which is over the, the western Indian Ocean. And so with the, the combination of goes east, goes west, those two Mediasat satellites, and then Himawari 8, we now we have global coverage now of the entire Earth with, with um, really nice instrumentation. And so we, we do work a lot with our international partners in order to, to share data sets and learn um, different things. And also the, just getting the, the global Earth coverage at one time is really important, both from the weather standpoint and the climate standpoint, as, as I mentioned previously. As we sort of start to wrap up this really interesting discussion with Dr. Dan Lindsay from NOAA on, on satellites, Dan, what do you see as the sort of next frontier in the GOES program, first of all? And then I want to just ask about your thoughts in satellite meteorology in general. But first, the GOES program. What, what's what's coming next in NOAA for, for satellites? A great question once again, Dr. Shepard. So right now, we are starting to think about what's going to be the follow-on to the GOES-R series. We have two more satellites coming uh, in this series. They're, they're called GOES-T and GOES-U, and once they reach geostationary orbit, they will become GOES-18 and GOES-19. Uh, those will eventually replace our current GOES-East and GOES-West, um, and so we really constantly have a two-satellite constellation, GOES-East and GOES-West, and then the next two satellites, which will have essentially the same capabilities as GOES-16 and GOES-17, will be um, will be replacing those. And then beyond that, this is uh, this is getting into, say, the early 2030s. We're starting to think about what do we want to do with our next generation of satellites beyond the Gozar series. And uh, if any of you who are listening happen to be at the at the, the American Meteorological Society annual meeting in um, that was in Boston back in January, uh, there was a talk by uh, several people from NESDIS, including uh, Pam Sullivan from the Gozar program, and she introduced something called the GeoXO program. And this is a new program where it's just now spinning up. We're starting to make plans on what will the next generation satellite hold. And at this point, the, the, there's actually a lot of possibilities. Uh, things that we're considering, but certainly aren't, aren't for sure, include a, an atmospheric sounder that we would put on geostationary satellites. Uh, the Europeans are planning one of those as well. Uh, the Chinese Meteorological Agency already has one, can, something can called I, Gears. Can, can I pause you for a second and then yes. let you continue? Can you tell the listeners briefly what uh, an atmospheric sounder is and why it's important? Sure, yeah. So a sounder, what, what that refers to is it has lots of spectral channels. I, I, the, the ABI only has 16. A sounder has, a hyperspectral sounder has on the order of a couple thousand channels. And the advantage of having all of those channels is it allows us to get more vertical information in the atmosphere. So I can learn more about what is the temperature and the water vapor at more vertical levels instead of uh, just a couple of vertical levels, which we can do with the ABI. And remember early when we were talking about the, the data assimilation from the models, the more vertical information we have, especially out over the remote oceans, the better. So the sounder allows us, it gives us really more information in the vertical about temperature and water vapor and even winds. 
And that information is really useful to feed into the models and also for forecasters who are uh, doing severe weather forecasting. Yeah, I, I think many people probably have the concept of a weather balloon in their mind in terms of how it gives us information on the vertical as we go up. Yeah, that information is critical, as you say, in the models. You know, satellites, really, you know, weather balloons are launched in, in twice a day, maybe, and at certain locations. But the ability to get that same type of vertical information more frequently and at many more places can help improve those models. But you, you were saying, hey, I, I interrupted. Interrupted you. You were saying something about the Chinese also have a sounder, and you were you were sort of kind of walking through the next phase there. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Chinese have a sounder, and so that's one of the things being considered. Another thing we're looking at is something called a low light imaging or a day night band sensor. You may have seen some images from our uh, JPSS VIRS instrument. This is a polar orbiting instrument that shows us we can see city lights at night, we can see the light from wildfires and that kind of thing. There's a consideration of putting a similar instrument where we can see uh, uh, really low levels of light on the next generation. Uh, there's something called a tundra orbit that we're considering as well, and that's where you take a satellite and you go up over the poles. Not not the same as polar orbiting. Uh, it's sort of an el elongated orbit such that it gets really close over the poles and takes high-resolution images. Anyway, all of these things are on the table for the next generation of, of GOES, and uh, we'll probably be working a lot on in the next couple of years on really determining what that constellation is going to be. And I, I want to take this opportunity to just con Thank NOAA and our, our federal system because, again, getting back to that European model discussion, um, the European model is one of the reasons they're very good is they sink a lot of dollars into really fast computers and capabilities for those data assimilation strategies. Uh, it, it's important for people to understand that NOAA has a very different budget philosophy because with NOAA's budget, they have to you know, procure these awesome new satellite systems, uh, run models by computers, upgrade and keep our uh, polarimetric dual pole uh, radar system, fund weather service offices, fisheries, ocean. So th the point I'm trying to make is, you know, we don't just sink our money into the models for, for in, uh, faster computers, which is very important. And we certainly are keeping pace with uh, new capabilities and things like the EPIC program and whatnot. But I want people to understand that we have a very broad portfolio in our weather infrastructure here within our federal system. These satellites aren't cheap, but they're critical for diagnostics of weather and for weather modeling and prediction. So, Dan, with that, are there any sort of final words that you'd like to say concerning the GOES program or our satellite program here in the U.S.? Yeah, I would like to mention, uh, you, when you were bringing up the topic of the models, um, on how the, the U U.S. models are quite good, too, and, and that, I, I want to stress that point because even though, like you say, the, the European model may be statistically better over time, there are many, many cases when the U.S. model, such as the GFS, does better. And if you go and talk to a forecaster, it's really – what they use is what's called an ensemble uh, of forecasts from a lot of different models. And so they all really work together. And, and so I, I think that uh, – and, and then you know the observations that, that NESDIS is providing with the satellites are feeding into all of these models. They're feeding into the U.S. models as well as the European models. That, that is correct, and I think that's an interesting point. Dan, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast, but I can't get out of here without our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientific superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Quincy Vagil. Quincy is an avid storm chaser based in Oklahoma City, which is the heart of 
Tornado Alley, so he's in a prime location. He travels the country every spring and summer to look for the most incredible storms that our atmosphere has to offer. Check out his content on Twitter and Instagram at StormChaserQ. If you know someone that is deserving of our Geek of the Week, check out our Facebook or our Twitter page. And let me just say right off the bat, Quincy, if I mispronounce your name, I apologize. Congratulations on being our Geek of the Week. Dan, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so for, so much for having me, Dr. Shepard. It was an honor to be on. Oh, I knew you'd be awesome. And I think uh, if you listen to this podcast, you know a bit more about our weather satellite program and you have officially geeked out with us. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. 